Pastor Reeve said this morning, we know there's a lot of people that come that are new in the summer because you're, you're in town, you're trying something new, you have a new job. And so we know, honestly, I remember how disorienting it is to find a new church. So you know what? Put the work in. We're here. We love you guys. We want you to feel at home. And we don't assume that everybody knows the Lord. You know, not, not everybody's ready for that. So we want you, if you're not a believer, um, in any level of that, push into what Scripture is talking to you. Like, participate in what's going on with the community and just um, maybe have that idea that God really does want to speak to you. So let me start today. I'm going to read you a little poem. It says this. It says, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. It was middle age, but it was 20 I wanted. Youth, free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. I didn't write it. <laughs> it was actually written in 1989, I think, a kid named Jason Lehman, 14 years old. He wrote it to the Dear Abby column, which was printed uh, in syndicated newspapers all across the land. H who can relate to that? Good, me and four people. That's great. <laughs> All right. So I'm speaking to the rest of four people. Uh, we're going to just walk through this together. We're talking about our story. That was kind of the premise of Philippians, learning to like lodge our story into the grand arc of God's story and what that means to us right here and right now. But honestly, that probably resonates with your story, if you're anything like me, sometimes better than what Scripture does. Listen, chronic dissatisfaction, struggling to be content, is something that all of us struggle with. Every single one of us wants it. Contentment is just that thing that you cannot hold on to. It's that guest that just never stays long enough. You get up and they're gone. Um, we struggle with contentment in so many ways. Relationships, right? big things like that, right on down to like, I need faster internet. I, a friend of mine moved out to the country and has to get his internet from a satellite, and he's about ready to just move back to town. Now, it's, it's that big of a deal. So why is it so hard? Why is your contentment, your satisfaction, why is that so hard? What's the deal? Why is the nature of your desire, our longing, why is the nature of that to never really be satisfied? Now, there's two ways you can think of it. In fact, people have looked at the text we're going to go through and say, well, Paul's really saying just to, to ignore or to push down your longing or to get rid of it. I don't think so. He's not. Does that work? It doesn't work, does it? What about just push into your desire? That's what I need to be content. But if you're older than nine years old, you know that there's something else that always comes along, and that contentment has a clock, and it always runs out and you're on to the next thing. 
Now, desire isn't the problem. It's really the warning light. It's teaching us what we need to do. So here's what the text is going to tell you. I'm just going to tell you right now so you can start thinking about it. It's going to tell you this. Hey, Christian, you're called to contentment. Now, is that good? If I was going to preach to you out of the Bible and say, Christian, you're called to prayer. You'd be like, yep, that's right. I don't pray much, but you're called to prayer. Hey, Christian, you're called to read your Bible more, or you're called to serve those in need. You have, yep, don't do that either, but I know I should do that. Now, when I'm going to tell you you're called to a life of contentment, you're like, yay, whoa, I didn't do that. You want that, but you're terrified that you'll never have it, because in your experience, it doesn't work like that. So we are called to contentment. Let's Four of us, four and me. We're going to walk through this together. The rest of you, you can just watch. Maybe you'll pick something up, because I am not a content person. Philippians 4, we're going to go through 10 through 13. Now, let me read this for us. This is the Apostle Paul in jail, writing to the Philippian church, Macedonia. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And we all know this first. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in great need. We don't need just contentment. We need you. So we humbly come before you this morning and we ask that you would open up your word. You would unveil this beautiful treasure that you've given us, that you would pour out your spirit that we might know you and love you and worship you. Lord, would you do that for us this morning? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so here we go. You knew this was going to come at the end of Philippians, right? This would have been the Sunday to just not come and listen to it online, because you can turn it off. Listen, Christian, you are called to contentment. Last week was bad enough when we were called to rejoice, but now we're called to contentment. We learned last week that we have to fight for things. We have to fight for unity together. We have to fight for joy together. We have to fight for a mind that's aligned in the Lord, right? This joy. Now, joy and contentment are kind of like cousins, like happiness, joy, contentment, just like anxiety, fear, and depression might be thought of as cousins or related to one another. But contentment and joy do go together. But it's something that we are called to. The Apostle Paul says, he doesn't really say that he's content. He says that I've learned that I'm to be content. And that in there, there's a secret. So a secret that he's understood on what that means. So there's, think, there's a couple things we're going to do today. I'm going to answer two questions from the text, and then I'm going to give you five ways to grow in contentment. Very practical. So the two questions and answer from the text are, why is the Apostle Paul rejoicing greatly in the Lord? Why is he doing that? It's not a trick question. We're going to let the text answer that. And secondly, what is the secret to contentment? What is it? Like, what's the big key here? What are we missing? So we're going to answer those two questions and just walk through some ways that we can actually learn to practice contentment together. All five of us. All right. So 
Christian, you're called to contentment. The first thing is this. Why is the Apostle Paul rejoicing greatly? It's a good question because he had just commanded last week the church to rejoice. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And now he tells them, he transitions into this. He says, I'm actually rejoicing greatly in the Lord. Why is that? We can miss this. Well, he expects a shared experience with the Philippian church. He had planted this church 10 years ago. He'd been in and out of there. But now he's in Rome, probably in jail. They're in need because there's conflict in the church, both internally and externally. It would be really good if he was there, but he can't be there. But he has this expectation that both this Philippian church, if they hold on to Christ, and also himself, will have this shared experience of what it means to walk in Christ and to experience joy together. He has this assumption and this expectation. This is why he's saying, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Um, It's almost like uh, I have a kid who loves to hike. And she will go out and hike and camp, and then she'll send everybody in family chat these copious amounts of pictures. I mean, and they're gorgeous. We're like, oh, man, you know. Back to that poem, if I was 20 and I could go do that with you. All right, so she, she has to share it. She is so into it, and she loves it so much. Her joy is not complete until she shares the experience to the level that she can with us. This is what the Apostle Paul is assuming. He's experiencing joy, and he's sharing it with them, and he's expecting them to share it with him, right? He's practicing what he believes. He's not just commanding them to rejoice. He's saying, no, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Um, But why? Well, I think you picked up in the text, and you've heard several times, that the Philippian church sent him a gift. They sent Epaphroditus, an emissary, probably with a little entourage, up there to Rome with a financial gift and other stuff. Because you know what? You, when you're in prison, especially in a Roman prison at this time, you kind of had people take care of you. They would not, the state would not take care of you. They just would confine you. So they're sending people up with stuff for him. It's, but that's not why he's rejoicing. Listen to verse 10 again. You have revived your concern for me. Good. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In other words, I'm not just rejoicing because you gave me something. Hey, thank you. It matters. You're honoring God. You're blessing me. But that's not why I'm rejoicing greatly in the Lord. Why is he doing that? He understands by their actions that the grace of God is taking territory in their lives. He understands by the fact that they are both in need, but pushing resources and people to him that probably could have been held back or used in their own circumstances. And they trust Jesus. He knows it. So he's rejoicing because they are growing in grace. He's rejoicing because they understand what it means to be in Christ with him. They have the possibility and the probability of learning how to rejoice in the circumstances, how to sit in joy when everything else is falling down around you. He's thankful for the gift, but he knows that they have this mind among themselves, right? Uh, The Christ hymn in chapter 2-5. Have this mind in yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a man, 
not holding on to his rights, giving it up for you personally. And when that takes ground in your heart, when grace becomes that real, it changes how you live. Other people become the priority. He saw this in their lives, and he was, yes, only this, only this. They're following Jesus. That's what grace does. As you grow in your joy in Christ, as you understand that God has stamped your soul with his approval, he's stamped your soul with pardon and forgiveness and righteousness and everything, and you walk around with that, that's called grace, and you receive it as a gift. As that starts to grow in you, um, you become less concerned about your own joy and your own priorities and your own happiness, and you become more concerned about other people flourishing, whether it's just general people in need or people learning to know Christ or people in You just do. That's how you're built, actually. That's what it means to worship. You can't be in a, a, a relationship with God by grace and not start to operate in grace. He saw this in their lives, and he rejoiced. Um, a long time, well, I'm just going to tell you a dad's story. I get a lot of, I have a lot of cards for my kids and little, little dumb things they made when they were little, right? Um, they're older now, so I can say that. I can't throw them away. And I'm not particularly sentimental, and I'm kind of a minimalist. I love to throw stuff away. I've tried so much. I've thrown some of it away. But, um, you know, the stuff that was really bad art. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that is, you know, or who did that, which one of you kids did that. I remember one time getting a gift from one of my kids, and it was a little thing, and it just said, Dad. It was one of those friendship bracelets, like, I'm going to wear that, you know. <laughs> so I tied it onto my flight bag, my work bag, and it stayed there forever. And I, I'm trying to think, why does that matter so much to me? Um, is it just open sentimentality? Is it just, yeah, part of it. But as I was reading this text, I'm realizing um, the kid that made it wasn't asked to make it, didn't make it in Sunday school, didn't do it for Father's Day, really. She did it because she wanted to. Oh, man, I just love that. Like, she, she appreciated me. Wow, that's power. She loved me. She said it. So I, I want that, right? Not that I need her to love me. Like, I, I want her to, 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 to my love, to, for her to overflow in how she loves both me and other people. I, I want her to see that. So that gift was a gift of love. And it just, I can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of it. This is what the Apostle Paul felt like with this church in Philippians. He's probably not, well, he knows he's not going to get out of jail, I think. He's preparing them for his death. He's rejoicing greatly in the Lord because they're starting to, in the midst of tough situations, they're learning to follow Jesus in real time. That's where he's going. Um, so why is he rejoicing? Here's why. This church he planted 10 years ago, Macedonia, is popping. I thought they were in conflict. They are. But they're learning authentically to follow and to trust Jesus in circumstances that are awful. Living, active faith, that's his goal. That's why he's rejoicing. How does this relate to contentment? Good question. I have no idea. Just kidding. Here's how it relates to contentment. You are not going to find a contentment outside of Christ that doesn't have a timer on it. 
the only type of contentment, the type of contentment you're meant to dwell in is built in and on and with and through your relationship with the risen Lord, period. So it matters, right? If you're called to contentment, first, we need to understand what that means. Secondly, what is the secret to contentment? So let's figure this one out. <sighs> yeah. Let me start the easiest way I know how. I can tell you what contentment is not. Contentment is not apathy. We think it is sometimes. For instance, if you say, you know what? I don't really need a friend because I'm my own best friend. That's called apathy. That's called nihilism. That's called I've been rejected too many times to take the risk. That's not what God wants for you, clearly. You're not content. You're afraid. You're not going to do it anymore. That's apathy. It's also not laziness. Hey, I'm fine leaving my clothes all over the house. I don't know why you can't be content with that. <laughs> That's called laziness, right? You're a steward of what God has given you. Get on it, friend. So that's not contentment. Put down the remote, right? So it's not that, and it's also not personality. I think this is a little more insidious. Because um, some people are really patient. They can seem content, but they're not. Um, some people are people pleasers. Some people just, like, make people happy. They're yes men, content individuals. No, they're trying to find contentment by getting away from conflict and manipulating people to like them. That is not contentment. All right. So now that we know what contentment is not, it's not apathy, it's not laziness, it's not personality, here's how I'm going to define it based on Scripture and the text. And then we'll do our best to work this out. Um, contentment is this. It's finding satisfaction ongoing. It's not one time. It's finding, holding on to satisfaction in God's provision for you, what he's giving you. His purpose personally for you, his purpose for your life, and also his, his presence in your life. Okay? So that, that's honestly the type of satisfaction you want. Right? This is contentment. Satisfaction in God's provision for you, his purpose, and his presence in your life. This is it. This is what Paul is experiencing. Now, how, can, well, how does Paul get that? Well, how is Paul content? He is actually grateful and satisfied for God's provision. The Philippian church actually took up a gift to him. God is providing for him. Do you see that? God normally provides through other people. I'm just going to tell you that. So God is providing. What about the purpose of Paul's life? Because he's highly educated. He's a crazy church planter. He's, now he's in jail. How is that good for God's kingdom? doesn't make sense. Well, Paul said, actually, I know that my imprisonment will serve to advance the gospel, both in my life and here, and guards are coming to Christ. So, hey, let's do this. He is not worried about the purpose of his life crushing under the weight of his circumstances. That's contentment. And also God's presence. This is the key. Paul is just not worried that God's going to forget about him. He's not worried that he's going to wake up one day and the Holy Spirit will have just floated away. He's absolutely convinced that Jesus loves him, died for him. He's coming back for him. All right? So 
That is contentment, and it's not dependent on circumstances, right? Not. Here's a secret. Not dependent on your circumstances. How do I know? Verse 11. Paul says, for I've learned, key word, he learns. Contentment is not something you just, oh, now I get it. Scribble it in your notebook. Now I'm content. No, you're not. You got to fight for it. Too. You got to learn this. We'll get to that. But I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I love the fact that he didn't say I'm content in every situation. I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to abound in, every, in any and every circumstance. Right? So circumstances do not define your contentment or crush it. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is it? I can do all things how? Through? You know this one. Hey, let's just wrap it up then. It's so hard, though. He can do all things. So let's, let's understand this a little bit more. So it's not dependent on circumstances. What is it dependent on? Well, understand that what the end of this verse is, which is the big idea, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, this is the context. Paul's, the all things in this verse is the various seasons in Paul's life of success and failure and unmet need that he has learned to walk through, not understanding why or how it's all going to work out. He's understood. He's to be content and satisfied in God's provision uh, and everything that he's given to him in the circumstance, in the purpose that God's working out both in his life and through his life, and in the fact that God is present with him. He's learned that through his circumstances, he's learning how to trust and treasure God above all. Hey, if he's out of food, he knows that God will give it to him, whatever he needs. If he doesn't have a place to sleep, he's like, oh, Jesus did that. I can do it too. So I say this because it's very easy to misapply this verse. I've done it my whole life. And say, oh, if I have enough faith, God will change my circumstances. That's what that verse means, right? No. It doesn't mean anything close to that. I wish it did. I probably don't wish it did. Because I would never really understand what faith is. It does not mean if you have enough faith, or if you live well enough, God will change your circumstances. That's not how God works. That's not how relationships work. It means if you walk in Christ, if you're walking in faith, even a kernel of it, Your circumstances do not dictate the outcome of your life. God does. There's nothing else like that in the world. The apostle learned contentment through being humbled, having more than enough, right, in the chips. He rolled with some high-level people. He was a Roman citizen. Plenty, hunger, abundance, overflowing, and also always playing catch-up. You ever feel that way? He learned it. So how? Contentment is empowered by God. Know that. Here's, a, here's one of the mysteries, right? Um, the mystery of contentment. What is it? Well, it, it's, it's, it's not dependent on your circumstances, and it's empowered by God. Listen to what he says. I can do. I can do it. He's saying that. Now, it's not self-sufficiency, but he's saying, I can actually do all things, whatever circumstance I find myself in, whatever road I'm walking down, I can do this. 
He doesn't just say, well, well, God is sovereign, so it'll work out. Not what he's saying. He's saying, I can do this through him, that's Christ, who strengthens me. So your contentment, mystery solved, must be empowered, energized, sustained, founded on God himself. Well, what, what does he do? How does he empower me? I don't know. When you lose contentment in a situation, go to him. He will give you the power to walk that out. This, this is what he's talking about. This is how Paul learns contentment through his union with Christ. This is what empowers us as we push into prayer, as we understand that we have everything that we need in Christ, both now and for the future. And as we start living in that assumption and walking in that assumption, contentment starts to take over. He learned this. What is the secret to contentment? Um, I'm going to quote someone by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish pastor. I'm not going to try to do it like he would say it, although it would sound better. He says this, Paul learns contentment not by creating his own security, but by abandoning his security to Christ. Friend, much of your contentment revolves around control. If I can control my environment and my circumstances and the outcome, I'll be fine. No, you won't. You're not going to be fine, even if you can do that. You're only going to be fine in Christ. You're only going to be fine when you're like a weaned child in his arms. See, Christians are called to a level of contentment that is not dependent on circumstances, that doesn't shut down, that doesn't have a clock on it, that actually is catalyzed through circumstances, empowered by God. We're called to this. We're called to this. All right. Um, I'm just going to tell you, I, I kind of hated this, this verse this week. So I want to give you something. So where do we go with this? We're called to contentment. What are some practical ways like the apostle, we can start working this out in our lives. So I'm going to give you five ways to grow in contentment and do my best to explain them. Here's what I want you to do. Think about the areas you're not content in. And as we pop through these ways to, to practice contentment, think of how that might apply to where you're not content or you have chronic dissatisfaction. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your lack of spouse. Right? It all, any, wherever it's at. So practice these things. So five ways to grow in contentment. First is this. Practice generosity. Hey, here's a, here's a cool question. Are you, are you just really satisfied with your present level of income? Oh, I guess I'll keep my hand down too. Nobody is. What's, what's the threshold between poverty and rich or enough and rich? Oh, nobody knows. Because we're all rich. Maybe not all of us. The point is we build security through cash. We're not abandoning our security when it comes to this. What does our old grouchy uncle in Ecclesiastes say? 
Ecclesiastes 5.10, hey, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. We are a greedy people. Western culture is built on greed and never having enough. And if you don't think that affects your faith, then you are naive. This will kill your contentment like nothing else. So be generous. What does he say to first to Timothy, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to him? He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Hey, if we have food and clothing, with these will we be content? Not enough, is it? I don't know. He says it's enough. Could you be, could you be content with enough food to eat and clothes to wear? Well, he never lived in live my life and had to work where I work. And he, it says it. So we can, we can, we can push into generosity. And, and we would consider ourselves rich. So it's not a sin to be rich. Whew, right? But hear what he says. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now you're prideful because you can do anything you want with your money nor to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with us with everything to enjoy there, to do good works, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. This is is what we're to do, to be generous. So number one, practice generosity, right? See the text. Paul's sacrificing for them. They're sacrificing for him. This is God's desire for us. Number two, practice gratitude. Do you know... um, what the, the, the sound of a content heart is, just be quiet. Don't talk. Or praise God, one of the two. Think of how much energy, and I mean energy, you put in to bickering, complaining. Think about the level of heat that goes into that. How's your day? Is this? But dude, let me tell you, this person, blah. We just love it. We live on it. A content heart does not do that. Be thankful or be silent. So listen to yourself. Do you grumble? I mean, I've read Leviticus 10.3 this week, where Aaron loses both of his sons because they went off the chain, to quote Pastor Johnny Reed, and tried to to garner attention through the way they were going to worship God, and he just Took him with fire right there. And Aaron kept his mouth shut. It says he held his peace. I don't even know how that works. But I know this. A, a heart that is overwhelmed with contentment is thankful, right? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here's what one author said. You are content when you see God's mercy in every circumstance. And you praise him for it. Take the energy out of your complaining and your grumbling and your whining. Get rid of it, man. You you will never be content. Push it into praise. Number three, um, imagination, renewed imagination. Where does your mind go when things go dark in your life? Where does your mind go? I can tell you where a mind goes. What have I done wrong? And sometimes I need to do that, right? Because God does discipline That's not the kind of place I go to. Oh, no, I did something wrong. God's not going to love me. He's done with me. Or, hey, God, I'm actually living pretty good. 
So I don't know what your problem is. Get on board with my agenda. That's how the gospel works. Listen, here's the renewed imagination you need to push into. Before you start making conclusions based on your circumstances, you need to start believing that God is providing for you because he is and that he's working his purpose out in your life because he is and that he will never leave or never forsake you because he won't. You don't have an imagination for that. Push into it, you'll breed contentment. Number four, practice flexibility. Just stretching, you know? It helps. It probably actually does. It's not what I'm talking about. The inability to be flexible in life many times is the belief that your joy and your contentment hang in the balance. I can't do that. Hey, listen, your life plan is killing your contentment. I sit and I'm a planner. I'm a type A type dude. I can't tell you how many times I've had to surrender my plans to God. It's If you can't be flexible, if you can't serve somebody on the quick, if you can't break a meeting because somebody needs help, you're you're killing contentment. And number five, and this is the biggie, practice delighting in God. Here's a hard question, friend. Would you still delight in God if your circumstances never changed for the rest of your life? Would you still love him? Would you still come to church? Would you still believe in him? Would you? Psalm 131, we read it today. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. What does that mean? Well, here's what I can tell you from watching grandkids. You can watch a kid who's like a year old or so, and they're all fine and happy, happy. You want to put him to bed? Mama ain't there? There's wrath. Wean child. An infant latches to mom because of milk and other reasons. But a wean child doesn't need milk from mom anymore. But that child wants its mother. In other words, a weaned child in this context is you finding delight and peace and calmness and quiet for your soul, not because of what you get from God, but because of God. Because he holds you because he loves you, because he protects you like a mother hen under his wings. That's that's what the psalmist said. That's where my soul needs to go. Like a weaned child with its mom is where my contentment will come from. Is that you? That's contentment. So why is it so hard? Well, C.S. Lewis, Oxford author, grew up an atheist, became a believer in his 30s, said, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You know why you can't be content? Because you were designed and created to feast on glory. And the only place you're going to find it is the foot of the living God. 
right? We have all forfeited glory. We have all said, that's a good story. I'm going to do it my way. That's called sin, and that eternally separates you from the living God. Christ comes. He becomes the troubled soul before God for your pardon, for your righteousness, for your joy, that your soul might be ever quieted by God. There is your contentment. Nothing can strip that out of your hands. This is what God wants for you now. See, contentment will never be yours if you are not God's. Never. Never. Repent. Let go of what you're trying to find your contentment in. Trust in him. You're made for him. You're made to belong to him. You're called to contentment. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Um, we have so much to learn as your kids. We have so much to learn in what it means to be content in you. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know, Lord. You are so good and so patient and so loving. You will endure, not just because you're graceful, but because you love us. So God, give us a contentment. And there's, there's people in our room that have a lot of reason not to believe this. God, would you give them a contentment as they push into you? Would you make us like weaned infants in your arms? What a revival would take place. How odd it would be to look in and see a people that have quieted souls in you. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.